A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. Come into the reading room, all you lovers of language and literature. This is the place for those of us who believe that reading is essential as we seek to rise above the ordinary. And the reading room contains a host of extraordinary people, leading lights of the written word. Authors, literary critics, columnists and ideas people will tantalize your minds with their wordplay while discussing the ideas and worldviews that form our wonderful literary milieu. Come step into a world of magic, the place of undiscovered treasures, a room of reading. This is The Reading Room. I'm Melanie Walker, and this is a space where we get to have a look at things that are happening when it comes to the written word, to the spoken word, to music, because, of course, that's made up of words most of the time, unless you're listening to a Tchaikovsky overture, and, of course, the authors who write all of these things, whether it be a songwriter or somebody who's written a book, but primarily I like to talk about books. Now, back... In the deep, dark ages that so many people have forgotten, but for many of us, it was only like yesteryear, the 80s, one of the best times and one of the most, for many of us, and I'm not saying for everybody, for many of us, the 80s in Johannesburg specifically was an absolutely amazing time. It was a time full of hope. It was a time that we could do anything. We could be anything. We were going to change the world. And the music was part of what everybody was doing in that particular time. If you throw your mind back to the wealth of bands that were coming out in South Africa, like uh, Johnny Clegg had started doing his thing then, and we went into the more off-mainstream kind of bands like the Asylum Kids and Backstop, and I, I could go on all day about all the different bands. And it kind of changed every now and then to other bands coming through, like Elemental and Evoid and Petit Cheval and a whole bunch of helicopters and the people who sang Monster from the Bog. It was a time of complete madness and something that children and youngsters of today are not going to actually have that experience because things were changing so rapidly in South Africa for the better for many of us, although people will turn around and say, for you it was good. But it was a good time to be alive then, in the days when we still were fighting the end conscription campaign and we were fighting to get South Africa into the world again. Now, the musicians at the time, of course, were the people who were spearheading a lot of this. And there's now a not-quite-tell-all book, but tell-nearly-everything book <laughs> about what happened in the music scene in the 80s as written by a drummer. And we all know drummers are very, very weird people. So we can't expect too much of it, but we'll find out from the man himself, Danny DeVette. <sighs> Thank you for joining us in the reading room today. Hi, Melanie. Um, yes, I, uh, it's great, uh, good to be here with you and to, you know, what, an, what a lovely intro. I mean, we partied so hard then because we didn't know what was going to happen around the corner. I mean, we were, un, we were lepers of the world, but Joburg was a, and still is, a very hard but very unique city and I, I i wouldn't want to have grown up anywhere else so the, this change though from being a drummer into becoming an author first of all the name of the book um i mean is it a play on ian jury sex and drugs and rock and roll because you've got drums and what Dr drum, yeah, drums and drugs it, and rock and roll in yeah, africa 
Yes, it's sex drums and rock and roll. So, sex uh, and uh, drums, we, yeah. <laughs> we were originally going to call it e-sex drums and rock and roll, a play on Evoid, but then there were all sorts of reasons that we didn't do that, one being um, appropriation, another one being it was just like we decided to just so just being the rebel I am, I put the word text down and then I scratch it out like I did it on the board at school. I used to rub out things and make leave rude words on the board. So the rock and roll <laughs> rebel in me calls it sex, drums and rock and roll in Africa. And it's essentially how and I had a, a real first world rock and roll experience in the third world. And my friend Gus Silva, who I'm sure you may have oh, as a the most as well, amazing Gus, writer in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we used to all be scared of him because Gus would be all nice to you in the interview and then he'd go back and he'd sit and he'd write the truth and he'd see right through any kind of pseudo things. And he said to me, you know, go. I was originally going to call the book Never Grew Up in Vonneburm because I'm still so childish. But, um, and because the suburb, you know, Vonneburm, I, yeah, I never grew Victoria. up there, but I was in a band yeah yeah and um he said to me write it as though it's someone in japan who's never you know sort of you must appeal to like a somebody else that would go hey wow there was a whole rock and roll thing going on in africa so that's why we went that route for the title but that that is actually interesting because i think many authors may run the risk of being too south afrocentric um in the way of writing which would would might only appeal to people who know or knew the actual milieu and the the times that mm. we were sitting in and they wouldn't it wouldn't make any um sense to anybody from overseas unless you were actually part of it so have you written it as gus said you should from the point of view that yes, somebody can I've, dip I've, into that's it that's why the Vonneburm, three chapters of Vonneburm are just wild rock and roll stories that uh, rival Guns N' Roses. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of showing that there was, uh, you know, that we, we, we rocked hard here. I mean, the, I saw Theo Krauss from the Nude Girls at the Johnny Clegg Benefit concert the other day. And it was a privilege for me to read out the bit that I'd written about him. And it's a whole story about how he got into this fight just before he got on stage with a fan and he was rolling in the grass and then he got up next to the stage and he had a toke on a joint and he, uh, and he, and you know, the band had already started and Franny, he, the manager, Franny Kotsa came down the stairs and he was like, come now, I'll begin, you know, they've come, they've just begun. And, um, he said, I, so he had a quick puke, <laughs> he took a toke of a joint, he rushed, washed his mouth out with tequila and he ran onto the stage uh, and started playing and uh, flawlessly, as out of it as he was. And I ended that piece with a saying, Keith and Angus who? He's our own version of, of that wild uh, super talented uh, guitar player, rock and roll hero. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of that element. But then there's also the the, the back uh, sort of story to how Evoid, the drummer, was arrested, you know, and how I joined the band and I came back and rejoined the band. And uh, n- not many people know that, you know. And uh, there's so many, there's only been sort of, I think it's seven drummers in all the time, eight now with Peter Cohen because he played with Evoid down recently at the, mm-hmm. uh, in Cape Town. Peter Cohen was with Bright Blue and Mango Groove yeah. um, as well, and Freshly Ground. So he's got a pedigree that rivals mine. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but you know, I've met, uh, probably 25 people who said they played for Avoid Drum as the drummer because the story's never been told. And I take great delight in, in busting them. You know, when I was on tour with one of them, they go, Hey, tonight you're going to meet a guy. 
who was the, the monitor engineer. He also played for Evoid. And then I would go, no, you didn't. So this book kind of a strange it time. <laughs> I mean, if you think about that, that particular time, there were so many amazing clubs and, and people used to go there. And even though, you know, people are saying, okay, well, um, some people have a different view of what the 80s were all about because, of course, you know, there was still apartheid and there was this, that, and the other. But for me, hanging out in Hillbrow and just the, the people, the one-eyed Mike from National Wake – uh, and yeah, was a, the, yeah. We were all hung out together. It wasn't a thing of, um, you know, we weren't, I suppose we, we'd grown up under the banner of apartheid, but because of our age, we weren't aware of it in, in such a strange way. And especially when you started partying and you were partying with a, such a, a, a huge array of different people who were all artists. For us, it was never a kind of like a, a race, racial thing in any way or form whatsoever because we were all together in this You're and fighting right. against we demand. In, in that that we, uh, I think we empathized with the rest of the world saying that what the country was doing was wrong. No matter where yeah. you sat religiously or whatever, you just knew morally that wasn't correct. And I think that was the, well, that was the circles that we moved in. Uh, but I remember, uh, many the first time I met you was at a, a, a gig with, that James Phillips played at, at uh, Gunnar's farm. You remember Gunnar and Pera yes. had a farm. Yeah, so oh, that's my best friend, Ursula. And they had, um, when he was still married to Ursula, and they had the band In Simple English. With That's Rusty, right. Rusty Stanley yes. and Andrew Cleland, who also then went on to correct, make a Zen, yeah. uh, a Zen arcade. Yeah, yeah. I was dating a girl called Leslie at the time, and um, she was related to Ursula. In the book, she's called Hot Friend because she has a Lebanese <laughs> husband now, and I value the rest of my life. So I didn't put her name in. So she's hot friend of my first wife because when I left my first wife, I said I put all my energy into forming the electric petals and one other thing. Oh, yes, dating her best friend. So that was at the time that I met you. <laughs> so but the book's full of those kind of little, yeah, yeah, little anecdotes. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the feedback I've had from particularly expats that I was staying overseas, they go, oh, it's so wonderful because we remember that street you described or that club, the mm. junction or Ponty or, you know, just all those kind of – I try to bring all of that into it as well, the where, where the places were and how we walked down the road hitching or the Bramfontein Rec Hall where I played with Steve Howells from the Asylum Kids. He had a band called What Colors and I was in between bands. I was helping out a band called The Garage Band and just like – some of the funniest stories are not famous bands or the, you know, the gems are often just the, the, the kind of art bands that were around. Mm. You know? yeah. But do you find that, I mean, because of what we were going through, that kind of informed the music specifically? I mean, I, I immediately think of the Asylum Kids, you know, like Fight It With Your Mind and, and all yes, of those kind of songs yes. that came out at the time where we were very anti, anti-establishment. I mean, I'm sure that you also went through that. Did you have to go to the army? Did that, does I that said, come into that, it at all? I left all? that out. No, I left that out completely. I kept it as just a music book. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, what, what, this isn't in the book, but um, obviously because of the army. Uh, no, I did. I actually alluded to this. Um, I wanted to put the, uh, the ECC in the conscription campaign chains across my bass drum when I was in Petit Cheval. Mm. And my brother was, instead of doing national service, he was in the police force. And he just said to me, you're crazy. Unless you want to go to jail, they're going to break into your flat, plant drugs, and then arrest you. Mm. On nothing to do with that. But, but, you know, but go ahead. And I went out. I didn't actually put it on. I just thought, you know, I'm just setting myself up to be a target, you know. And then the the, the sort of weird thing for me was I, I grew up very um, – 
yeah, I mean, all the prog rock bands, and then I moved on and I embraced punk and everything. But I made my mark in, in, in Evoid and Petit Cheval, who are pop bands and despised by bands like the Softies. And, uh, and, but there were, there were three people that, that always just embraced me for, saw past the pop star thing with me mm-hmm. and kind of got me. And that was Steve Howes, who is a very close friend of mine, uh, and Willem Muller. From the the Chere Famita Blues Band, and yeah. he was in a band called Nothing Personal when I first met him from Cape Town. And uh, Jonathan Handley, who's like a hero of mine. So Jonathan Handley and Robbie Robb to me are the two greatest South African songwriters. And Jonathan mm-hmm. was always just so I remained friends for decades with him because he I, I don't know if you know John Jonathan or anything. I've met him once him. or twice. Yeah, yeah, he's such a gentleman, and he's just. Uh, He's an incredibly talented uh, anaesthetist <laughs> who has been recording all these songs for all the years. And he, and he's told me some of the rudest jokes. And, but he always embraced me. So I was kind of half in that scene, but also kind of, yeah, as I say, the real lefties saw us as sellouts. Yeah, because we were successful, um, I suppose, you know, in, in a but way. But there was also the case, I mean, like, you know, with Elemental, you know, this is probably at that stage the top-selling um, pop band in South Africa, and we're talking about the mid-'80s. Yes. And, you know, going through to the record stage, uh, the record company, arriving all of them in one tiny little car, and then Brenda and the big dudes would arrive with all of their BMWs. And you suddenly realize that white music as it was in, in South Africa is as much as it was informing the youth of the time wasn't really a big thing it just no. really got the the apartheid government's um kind of scorn so down spot on, on so spot on with that now that's exactly how it was i mean there are a couple of brenda farsi stories which are my favorites actually well, she reckoned i was the only white girl she knew who could dance oh that's <laughs> well that's great and uh, talking about dancing she humped my leg at the eric Clapton concert <laughs> and she said to me uh, in front of her new husband who was videoing her with this like video camera that we'd never seen something that bought in new york and she said to me do you know why africa is so op- overpopulated and i said why and she went because we've got the rhythm <laughs> but that that, uh, that time we all flew to see eric Clapton. i didn't play that day but i ended up just hanging out backstage and meeting eric Clapton, and that's all written about in the book but and chirping him, actually giving him my wise ass sort of take, because I always reckon the the ten seconds of embarrassment is worth the dinner time story or the picture of a lifetime, you know. <laughs> so I take my chance for that. Are those a lot of the stories? Are they like that? I mean, I, there's lots of pictures of you with very very famous people here, yeah, there, and well, everywhere. Yeah, like I, I hope that most of the people who've met me would remember me because I did give them something that they didn't normally get from someone else. When people say, "Danny, I've never met anyone like you," I'm never sure if that's a compliment or an insult. But um, like, uh, do you know Mark Vass, the singer yes. of Metal Morph? Metal Morph. So that's how I describe Mark in the book. I said, Mark is the, when you've met him, you've never met anyone else like him. So it could be, it could be both ways. He's he is a complete looney tune. Exactly, I mean, especially exactly. as he walks, works in the corporate world. But I mean, he's yes, like he's almost completely yes. tattered. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's amazing. And that's yeah. the one thing. I mean, dentists and lawyers and accountants and, and those are the people who used to be complete hardcore rock and rollers, yes. you know, and, but they, yes. I, you know, and, and it always makes me think about that whole thing. When you see those pictures, this is your grandmother in the sixties or in the seventies. This is what she used to do. She went to Woodstock. She did this, she did that. And the younger generation always see people who are older as being like the older people, like you would have seen who had the blue rinses and exactly. you know, listened yeah. to the, what the government had to say. Whereas we're still the same people. 
in our heads absolutely and that's well i hope that my book reflects that <laughs> i'm sure it does actually because of you but know would it actually then be a good thing i mean do you think that the younger generation by reading your book would get an idea of the fact that we weren't just these strange people who didn't know anything about anything because you know any younger generation always thinks that the parents know nothing Okay. Well, my, yes, my aim is totally that they're jealous when they read and they go, why didn't we grow Like I did when I, when I, I missed the whole Woodstock thing. I was just a, a little tiny, tiny kid. And, um, I always wished, you know, that, that, wow, wow, it would be nice to grow up in the sixties and be a hippie and everything. So I hope that if I, I could make it as appealing, you know, to them that they, they would, you know, one of the, I started the front of the book with a whole lot of quotes. So the first quote is by Sito from Vonneberg and it says, Danny, why do you always have to take things too far? Cause I made him his life hell for th- over a decade, but pranking and teasing and etc. And the second quote is my son and it says, dad, please don't be yourself. And that was my son on the way to every school function. Cause I mean, <laughs> I had a mohawk and I met his teacher, Mrs. Furry in grade four. He said, Dad, it's teachers meet the parents. Uh, are you going? And I was like, yes, of course. I'll be there on Thursday night. And he said, uh, what are you going to say to her? And I thought a bit and I pulled the car over and, and I, I said, what's your name? He said, Mrs. Faree. So I pulled in and I said, I'm going to say, Mrs. Faree, don't take this person, Lee. I'm in the music industry, which means I cap a 45 caliber, bitch. Make my, uh, <laughs> my son don't come first in class. I cap your mother in ass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm Lucas' dad, and the strange thing is, I actually did it, but I mouthed the word "bitch" because I was I wimped out there. But uh, Mrs. Free took it in good spirits, and so my son has grown up. Well, asking me when he was very young, how why do one of them roll their own cigarettes and stuff like that? And he's a he's an accountant, and he's rebel. He's a very good drummer, but he wants to make it in business administration. He's got an honors degree. Come louder! He's busy with the masters already. He's only twenty two, so I, I think I did something right in all the madness. And, um, yeah, it's just, uh, we're all normal people, but we were rebels. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's such a double sided coin, this rock and roll thing, because I've seen a lot of people go down to it. And I'm sure you have too, Mel. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people on the brink who've come back from where you think they, that's jail or death and they, they turn around. And I so salute those people, you know. I've just been lucky. I've never been kind of, uh, cursed with any kind of addiction thing or anything but I have been naughty and I have partied hard. You know? Well I think that everybody in the 80s was partying hard if you were of a specific age in the same way that the people who were that age in the 70s were doing that whole free love kind of thing or disco yes. Yes. and then of course you know Woodstock before that so each generation has its thing. I just feel as I said I don't think that our, this current generation of youngsters the kids who are in their late teens going into their 20s yeah. have had anything like that. I mean even the rave scene before before they came along, gave you a chance to have this expression, the stuff that you write about. They're not they're not going to have these stories to tell. But I'm quite glad to see that a lot of the rock bands, and as you, you said, at the Johnny Clegg tribute concert, and Evoid played, as did Elemental, although yes. like not the original lineups in some of the cases. But yes. you know, some people are sitting there going, oh my goodness, it's so good to go back to that again. Especially as so many of the bands didn't crash and burn, but just couldn't go any further, especially here in South Africa, yeah, with the exception yeah. of like cool crossover um, bands, Mango Groove and Johnny Clegg, yes, those kind yes, of people who had yeah. that. So I look at these kids and they, they have no touchstones, no cultural touchstones apart from social media and TikTok. Mm, 
Yeah, which is good and bad. Uh, I mean, in our generation, the music you liked defined who you were. It was pretty simple. There wasn't gaming. There wasn't all these other ways of expressing yourself or aligning yourself to anything. It was if you had a uh, a David Cassidy album <laughs> or you had a Led Zeppelin album, you were two different people. And that kind of it was pretty clear cut what you stood for, you know. And then later in the 80s, if you were into The Cure and The Sisters of Mercy and you were a certain type of person and if you were into Rick Astley and Kylie Minogue, you were. But then it, since the social media, that's all blurred. And uh, mm. and I, I think the tragedy is that uh, everything is so immediate. So, so stories don't have a chance to kind of simmer develop. or develop. Yeah, it's just, it's, yeah, gone. Doof, boom, move on to the next thing, you know. The attention span has, has dropped so much. Sure, terribly, eh? It's only. It's probably. It was fifteen seconds. Andy Warhol said it's probably one point five seconds now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely true. I mean, do do you think that people these days? especially post-COVID, where everybody thought, oh, I'm going to read every single book I can get my hands on. And then, of course, it was actually too much energy to read, so we'd just watch TV and let it flow over us because you didn't mm. have to engage. Yes. Do you think that people might get back into reading, and especially as it's something which was so integral to their lives at a specific point in time? Do you think people are going to get a lot out of your book from that, or, or do you think? Well, that I hope so. You know, younger hope, people I, will get information from it too. Well, you know, I think younger people are going to read it by accident, or maybe if their parents are. Yeah, you know, people are. Uh, some of the feedback, and this isn't just hype. I'm telling you the honest truth here. Yeah? As much as a rock and roll exagitarian would be honest. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, I'm just being an idiot now. Um, no, people are saying they laugh out loud at some of the stories. I mean, you know, and if maybe a parent or the kids saw that and was like, what are you reading? But I think um, they'd probably read it by accident, but I hope they would carry on reading. It would be engaging enough or interesting enough that they, mm. they would um, buy into all the things. Because one, I, I, I have a, a um, inc- I've been blessed in numerous ways. One is I, I don't know if it's a photographic memory, but I could remember at school, so we're studying valency, and it comes up in the exam, and I'll be, okay, that's the day that Lucian brought the Uriah Heap record to school, and I swapped him with a status quo album. Then we walked in from break, and then I could see the board, and I would write, and I would do well. Mm-hmm. And um, I can remember all, I remember the details, and I, have to, I remind people of stuff about themselves that they've even told me that I wasn't there. And I go, how do you remember all this? And that's kind of a, it's a blessing and a curse because I'm an insomniac. <laughs> Since I was a kid, I couldn't sleep. My brain just went all the time. Boom, 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 boom. So you've got an eidetic memory, essentially. Yeah. Is, that, is that how you describe it? Okay. Yes, cool. eidetic. So yeah, I, I also do the, the same the, thing. The, is it? So you have the, mm. Well, there we have that. In, what star sign are you, Mel? Oh, no, no. I don't go into star signs. But we are the best. Okay. I'm absolutely, the star sign I am is the best star sign of all. And it remains anonymous. No, it'll be Libran. Libran is the best. Oh, okay. The best. Absolutely right. the best. So, Martin, <laughs> so you're always on the moral high ground. Because uh, Martin from uh, Bonneboom, he would always be the, the one in the band going, you need to have your equipment together. You need to be that balance. Has to be We're right, control freaks, know? yeah. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, the... the the book what made you decide that you were going to write it is it because the history of storytelling and especially not having people to tell it to that would appreciate it as much as we did and you don't want to lose that is it because for that reason that you did it or is it i mean what why did you decide to okay. write this book? all right um yeah thank you that's a very good question and i haven't actually answered that yet in an interview so like that so if i think back uh I left Vonneboom after 13 years and basically 
I had my own show going within a show. Once we started doing unplugged storytellers, that's my forte. Mm-hmm. And it, it just wasn't really fair on Sito as the front man because we'd walk on stage and people go, Danny, tell us a joke. Danny, give us a whatever, you know. And um, we had this crazy thing. And I, I must just say, uh, they are my brothers. I was on the road with them for over a decade, traveling in the cars. We're still close. We socialized. Um, it was a – I can't say – Amicable. It was just a natural thing that happened. But, you know, I was older. Well, God blessed me with a young teenage band in my 40s. I couldn't have had a better midlife crisis. So mm-hmm. I'm in my late 40s <laughs> and I get a band of 26-year-old people and I love to prank people and I'm childish. And I've got 26-year-old rock and rollers who are stoned all the time and taking every other thing they can to stimulate them and do the most crazy things. And I'm part of that mix and I'm just pranking people and going mad and getting my rocks off and they're loving it. Then they grew older. So uh, uh, 10 years later, they weren't the same little fools. And I was growing, if dare I say it, tighter. You know, eventually it was like a, a thing. So I was like, I can't just keep on being this crazy fool when I'm like in my, I'm already mid 50s. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I kind of cheated life out of maybe 15, 20 years by staying young all the time by being in bands. And my son was also now going to go into high school and I needed, so that was a natural whole thing. So that kind of, that ended and it's all detailed in the book, uh, in, in what I think the, is the right way. Um, okay. But then, but through all this, I was, when I was in Petit Cheval, I was telling fans stories about Evoid. And, yeah. and, uh, thing. And then when I was in Electric Pedals, I was telling people stories about Petit Cheval and Evoid. And then when I was in Warnerboom and when I owned the Wings Beatball, co-owned the club, and all the young musicians were coming in, I would tell them stories about all those three bands, you know, before. And then in Warnerboom, I would tell, so I kept on just telling the stories. And then I just thought, look, I need to put this all down. And I actually wrote it for my son. If that's a long, long winded answer to you, I thought I'm going to write this in so he can see exactly what his dad got up to and, and, and what I was part of. Cause I'm very honored and blessed to be part of that uh, South African music scene. It's, it's, people often say to me, you were in exactly what you alluded to earlier with a elemental arriving in a little, a little car. And, 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 and the whole myth was that we all driving in limousines because that's what, especially with Petit Cheval, with all the makeup and the styling, mm, and the, mm. you know. And um, people say to me, aren't you, don't you, aren't you bitter? If you were, you know, if you were in Duran Duran in the same as Petit Cheval and Void were here, you'd be living in your own castle, you know. Yeah. And materialism aside, I just said, you can't think like that because I could have been the little – Girl standing in front of the vulture that <laughs> was taken by, you know, that famous by photo. Kevin Carter, that's, that's yeah. Good. Yeah. So, by Kevin Carter, yes. So, I mean, you know, you can't, for me, you can't think like that. I, that's the hand I was dealt with South African music. I, my, my riches are all the people like yourself that I've met along the way and that I've interacted with. And that's, I, I will go to my grave with a smile on my face because of that. And I've detailed that. So are there any of the people that you've like incorporated in the book who've come to you and said, I hope, I wish you hadn't said that? Have you had any of that kind of response well, or is everybody this, just laughing about it? These are fantastic. No, these are fantastic questions because there is some serious stuff. I always say there's 103, yeah, 106 people in the book. This is my little line. Six villains and 100 heroes, 95 of whom I slept with. <laughs> but it's not that at all. <laughs> uh, You're such that's a, a dog. <laughs> no, but I'm not. That's the whole thing. So that's just like rhetoric, rock and roll rhetoric. And that, that's been my, it's kind of my 
saving grace and my downfall at the same yeah. time because I've always got the wise-ass chirp. But, yeah, one thing, I was sitting with a, a friend of ours, Michael Bender, who was involved with the bands as well, and, and Lucian and I and uh, Lucian's wife, when he was out for the concert, having lunch. Uh, I had to say to Michael, Michael, I wrote something about the, the time you arranged that gear and it wasn't there. And I'm so, I actually felt a bit bad that I put that in because I didn't put all the other good things he did, you know. Mm-hmm. I mentioned mm-hmm. it in passing. And then he was like, Danny – like, come on, man, that was 30 years ago. I said, yeah, but the whole book's 30 years ago, you know? Exactly. Um, yeah, and then he said, uh, you know, we got into a little debate about it. Then Lucian, Lucian is, was very frustrated and moody, Scorpio. And I write all that eh, about how his mood affected all of us and how I wanted to leave the band. Once I heard Schoolboy from the Asylum Kids, I didn't want to do the cover band thing anymore. And Lucian brought it up. He said, well, Danny said I was, I was really moody. And um, and uh, I said, yeah, well, either I was lying, which was the truth. There's only, it's a black and it's white thing. It's one or the other, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, no, it was hard to read, but um, I didn't realize the impact I had on other people. But he said, oh, but I don't have a problem with you putting that in, you know. But Scorpios are like that. So, I mean, he can be forgiven. Uh, he can't no, help so. it. Yeah. So, yeah, there will but, be people. I'm sure there will be. But I haven't, I've, I've tried to make it positive. It's, I don't want to come across as a bitter old man and use it as a vindictive thing. Well, I, especially I, as I, it I was a fun it. time. Sure, there was stuff yeah. that went down yeah. that was like a lot of the time not that great. But on the whole, I mean, I just, I just keep on remembering the entire thing as being a safe place. It might have seemed quite wild and wonderful to some people, but it was a safe space because we all had each other's backs. Although I have to be honest, I was not around at the time when the Fadgets were doing their things. I was already yeah. over in England by that stage and okay. um, going to see Fad Gadget, which I thought, oh, yeah, you stole that name they from. They did. They did. No, they did. Did and they? All that, they did. No, absolutely. And also um, – there was a band called VHF that came into to PE when we were playing as a cover band there. We mm. were still slipping our own songs in, but it wasn't Taxi Man and Shadows. It was other kind of stuff. And we were kind of morphing from, believe it or not, from a prog rock band <laughs> into a new wave band, you know, which is yeah. quite a big thing. Because we, we, the one thing is that we could all play very well. Same as Petitua, we were very good at our... Uh, we weren't little pop stars in like a Malivan Ali type thing. We were good musicians, you know. Mm. So we had, but we had to change our mindset. Anyway, this band came and they had a synth bass and they were from Liverpool and they were just like the Pesh Mode and everything. And that was a big changing force for, for, for Evoid. So, uh, just some simple things. The, the junk jive riff is the same riff that's used in the NXS song, um, uh, Need You Tonight. So, great, and that came out after the Void. But the original, where Lucian got his one was, was from Talking Heads. Mama, Daddy, come and look at me now. The second verse goes, <laughs> so I know that Lucian worked that out. And I put that in the book, and Lucian was, oh, well, that's true. I did. But I shortened it happened. and I used it. It's going to happen. So there's all there's a lot of, in, like the Vonnebaum CD sleeves, there's all sorts of hidden messages in that the people at, at the record company are only going to find out in the book. So the album called Tulsa someone who cares if you look on the inner spine there's a number and if you dial it it's the Betty Ford Clinic in America it's just like <laughs> fun that you had so I just think as a music fan if you grew up with, with the South African music scene and you have interest in that you will find these things fascinating I, well I hope you will you know? well I do like the fact that there's a lot of really 
good music coming back out again and and thanks to places like the radium and the, the new Irish pub uh, Irish club I mean there's certain venues because as we've gotten older there hasn't been places for us to go it's for mm. the young people yeah, yeah so yeah, whenever yeah. there's a band playing and I mean I know that for instance Elemental are going to be playing um, with the original lineup so Herman's going to be flying in from Germany Adrian the bass player has yes, said he will yes. play with them and they're doing it down in Cape Town so I'm actually going to go down to that oh, I've, that's I've amazing, decided yeah. I have to yeah. Um, but do you think that um, the music scene these days is lacking somewhat compared to the energy which we had when things were such a topsy-turvy time? Absolutely. A, because of all the cancel culture and everything, people are more, more, have, have more fear. Mm. I love it. I mean, we, we've, I've started again gigging uh, with unplugged shows as well to tell stories and promote the book. And so, uh, but I was a drummer. But in the meantime, I've kind of become a frontman by default by being an idiot when I was a drummer and running to the front and pissing my band off. <laughs> but eventually now I'm starting again. But I love it that when the, when we get booked again and again at, a, at the same place and then the owner, who's a younger person, goes, Danny, you shake this place up like all these young guys come in and they all sound like Mumford and Sons and they, and it's boring. It's the same old, same old. Mm. And then, also, in the older clubs like the Fireman's Tavern in Edenville, you've got all these great old musicians, but they're not challenging themselves. They're all playing ZZ Top and whatever the hey, band is. there's nothing you know, wrong with ZZ like, Top. Don't just do ZZ no, no, Top at all. No, but what hey? I'm saying hey? is that they, there's a whole lot of bands that play, play the exact same repertoire. Mm. So even though some of them were playing in original bands, they've kind of defaulted to that. I, I still want to play my songs like Harry Armpits Will Never Change the World, which I wrote for Therese Owen, the journalist, when she's leaning over. I said, that's a nice <laughs> Harry Armpits. I'll write a song about it. And she's like, I don't know how I feel about that. Or I have another song called I Love You More Than a Serial Killer, Love Serial. And uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I just love to I love to challenge the people out there. And I think that's what we did in the old days. The mm-hmm. bands and the music, like you mentioned National Wake or the Cherry Face Lurches, or bands that they didn't just play, the Radio Rats was so subtle. In I was just going to say the Radio Rats, the yeah. words of their songs. And it was so, I mean, that was late 70s. In fact, yes. I love the Radio Rats so much that I took their lyrics and got yes. somebody to engrave the lyrics all the way around the windscreen of my car on the outside. Oh, wow. Well, from what song? What, uh, what Oh, good question. I've, I've got to try and remember which song it was. Okay. It was a long yeah. time ago, you know. Yeah, but I mean, no. Oh, oh sorry. I, mean, I thought you did. You see, I would still do that now. <laughs> because, um, I, yeah, no, I mean, the Radio Rats were just, I mean, the, when, when we did a gig with them when we were Void, and I remember we were all, we just worked out Jailbreak by Thin Lizzy, and we mm-hmm. loved playing that, bam, 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 tonight, you know, a little bit of like little teenage rebels. And when the Radio Rats came on and they played their own songs and, mm. and Dave was like, last night I was introduced to you. I mumbled something like, you know, which just made me think we're so irrelevant already then. And uh, so they were a big inspiration to me, the Radio Rats, into not staying a cover band. You know, it was fine to go mm. and play all the holiday inns and earn some money and hone our craft. But thank God we didn't stay at that. We didn't stick at that. And we went and actually, because now the one thing, the new generation, they still, the music lives on. They still do know Taxi Man and Shadows and that from their, from their parents and mm. weeping and stuff like that. So oh, the music is the winner here, I think, you know, yeah. But I mean, I, I, with my kids, I mean, I say, right, I'm going out, I'm going to go and see, we went to go and, um, who did we see? Uh, uh, Tim Parr was playing with uh, Penny 
Levi. Penny Levi. Yes. Yeah. That's Adrian ex-wife. Yeah. Yes. I know Penny uh, well. She's a lovely lady. So do I. I knew her before I even knew Adrian. So oh, really? we go back okay, a very, we... very long way. Yeah. But um, I took my kids to go and see it and they loved it. And, and um, to go and see the... Oh, now I've just gone completely blank with Marcus Wyatt and his whole group of merry pranksters, uh, bombshell to beasts. So uh, yeah, okay. whenever right, they're yeah. doing something, and not the jazz stuff, but the, the mad stuff. And I, yes, I said to my yes. kids, this is what we grew up with. And my children are starting to appreciate it. So I think by reading your book, they might appreciate what we went through here as young white South Africans in such a topsy-turvy time that we yes. really were fighting against everybody and there was nothing we could do because we were such a minority. Does that come through in the book at all? To an extent, but on the other side, I, 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 a lot of the stories are about kind of the, 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 the glam side, as small as it was. I mean, uh, with, uh, with Petit Cheval, I mean, I, t- I talk about concerts in the park and I, 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 can I tell you one quick anecdote? I'll try and, of, of what a great front man John Selby was. He was the yeah. most arrogant person I've ever met, and I'm That's not true. in touch yep. with him now. <laughs> well, the one story which I nearly sent you, but I was sending you so much stuff. Uh, I just was also he met Janie Allen, and this mm-hmm. is quite a good one. She said she wants to interview him to say uh, to see who's got the bigger ego. So, do you know Nick Hauser from the advertising world at all? I don't know if you no, know Nick Hauser. But I know okay, Nick Hauser was a well. guy who thought up the whole fadget uh, image and everything, and then he yeah. helped Petit Cheval with all the styling, okay? Nick's very sharp. So, Sue Carroll was our manager at the time. She used to write for the Rand Daily Mail. She was the Petit Cheval manager. So, she went with Nick and Jonathan, and he said, yes, he'll go as long as she – as long as Janie Allen pays and it's a decent place and he can bring uh, his, some of his entourage. So she said, yes, she'll bring – he said he wants to bring his butler and his manager or his manservant, and, uh, which was Nick now in the pseudo role. So mm. she brought her friends. And then John just trumped her because he never said a word to her. He whispered into Nick's ear all the time. And he never actually gave her a direct answer. So who had the bigger <laughs> ego? See, but it was perfect because John wasn't as sharp as Nick. So Nick could say things. But then when she said – what makes Jonathan? Now, this you must remember. This is in the eighties when the Live Aid and uh, mm. uh, the, the, the whole We Are the World and everything was out. Okay, and um, uh, Band Aid with Bob Geldof, and um, as you said, that photo with Kevin Carter and everything. Okay, so she asked, "What makes Jonathan laugh?" And Nick, Jonathan probably said something up, and Nick said, "Human pain and suffering." And the Sunday Times came out. And it said, Lord Selby, the Lord that isn't, with a snooty photo of him. I remember the, <laughs> these articles so well. Yeah. And the byline <laughs> said, he laughs at human pain and suffering. And I was like, oh, well, there's our career. Oh, my God. How can we? We're going to just, no one's going to. The people queued after that. I mean, that, that whole thing about Mick Jagger, I don't care what they say about me as long as I put my face on the cover, uh, came into play there because um, – that happened, you know. Um, yep. But anyway, so let me quickly tell you about John. So John, we're playing at the Palm Grove in, in Margate. We've got like an hour slot as a special act of the night. It's in December. And on Christmas Eve, John used to love to preach to the crowd. Like in South Africa, they say that we, we're the lepers of the world. And he's still, and, he, and he'd turn it around by going, punching his chest and going, there's still a future in South Africa. So that night he tried to get into that whole shtick. Sue Carroll used to call him Reverend Salbury, Salby, preaching <laughs> at the crowd. <laughs> and these are holiday makers who've been drinking from lunchtime. They're like, shut up, play the music, let's talk, more song. So John just goes, a young girl died tonight. 
Her name was Samantha, and she was knocked over by a drunk driver. So think about that when you take your next sip of beer. This doom cloud comes over the whole place. He says, we're going to play a song now we haven't played for a while. It's called Deep in the Heart of a Cruel, Cruel World. This is for Samantha. So we played the song. We hadn't played it. I've got a lump in my throat. Girls are crying in the front row. And I'm just thinking, this poor family, every Christmas Eve, this is what they've got to deal with, this anniversary, you know. And we come, and then he turns around. He's like, okay, there's a time to mourn. There's a time to be happy. Then he starts getting into the birds, turn, turn, turn sort of thing, mm-hmm. but doing a Jim Morrison. And he, and he goes, and there's a time to, da, 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 and are you ready for some magical touch? And he turns the crowd around. Now he's got them in the palm of his hand. Every little thing we do, they are just, because now the gig's got soul. Everyone's felt all guilty about Samantha. Yeah. And, yeah. Out. and he get off stage, and I said, geez, John, that was heavy, man. Did you see it on the news, or did it happen here on the South Coast? And he said, they didn't want to listen to me, so I had to make something up. <laughs> didn't happen at all. If it didn't get so written about, it didn't happen. In, in rock and roll. Yep. Didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't, if you weren't there, so, then you, you know, you were not part of the whole thing. So now for people yeah. who want to take a little ride down the blast from the past who might have been there or people who want to find out more about a seminal time. Um, in the changes with, we're coming up in South Africa, where do they find your book? Okay, so I've got a website, www.dannydevet.coza, but it's only being put up in the next week or so. Or they can just DM me on Facebook, and I've been arranging. Books have gone all over the world that way. Um, yeah. I must. I did get offered a, um, a quite a, well, actually a huge name publisher, but I just, having worked at David Gresham, this is no slight on David Gresham, but mm. uh, Record companies in general, if you if you sign with a major, you get a small, small, small little pittance of kind of the, the percentage of, of the profits. So, you know, I didn't want to wait for my royalties for a year. And mm. and, and also just South Rock, you know, I did PR for the Parlotones. I don't know. Have you heard of them? Yes. <laughs> but then I did my job. <laughs> so I did uh, for six years. So I, I can promote this myself. I, I, only once the website's up, I'm going to say, you're my first, um, now my first serious interview. Um, I have done a couple just related to gigs, you know, the launches yeah. that I, I had. Uh, yeah, so I've done it myself and I'm going to continue doing it that way. So, Fantastic. Uh, once, uh, you know, yeah. And I'm, and, I'm and going, I'm, 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 I'm on my fourth, fourth print. So I've, I've sold, um, you know, I'm not going to give the figures now, but it's, it's uh, yeah, but it, they're not huge runs, but uh, I mean, mm. they, it's um yeah and I've, there were a few typos in the first ones. Apologies to people. Great uh, little story I can quickly tell you about that. The first Warnerberg album comes out. We did it indie, and the tracks on the on the on the backside don't match the running order to the CD. But now because in those days you used to print all the art the the the, the artwork at CDT, you print thousands because that was the cheapest way to do it. Mm. So we couldn't really change that. So the band were like, "What are we going to do?" And I said, "Like, listen." Whenever anyone brings it back, and only a few people did to the merch table, all you say is, "Hey guys, just give give them one of the normal ones. I've got another collector's item here that's been returned, and not, not one person <laughs> they said, "Give me my CD back." <laughs> and, uh, so there's yours, but I am correcting the typos that were in the book, you know, one or two, but uh, that I picked up, and then uh, well, send it to me, and I'll up. I'll sub it for you. I'm very good at doing that. <laughs> oh, great! Uh, thank you. <laughs> but but I wanted to say that if you aren't in the book, then you weren't really there. But I know I'm not in the book, so therefore um, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I think you might be. No, I actually think you might be. I, I don't want to. Uh, you know, it's such a big book, and I. The thing is, you. Uh, I definitely wrote about you, and they took out. It was going to be over a thousand pages, and they had to mm-hmm. take a whole lot out. So. 
there's a chance you're still in there that if that story made the made the made the cut, you know. Yeah, but I, but, I, but I used to fly underneath everything, going and putting posters up for various bands in the middle of the night in Hillbrow, yeah. being a roadie, all of that kind of stuff. So I was but kind a lot of, of like those just on the are, side. are mentioned in the book. There are a lot yeah. of people that that um just that yeah that that, that I because I wrote it as who was there, what happened, boom boom boom, you know. Mm. So um. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of bands mentioned. And also with all the bands that played at Wings, Wings was another, in the 90s, there was another whole resurgence of bands like Urban Creep and uh, yes. Squeal and the Springbok New Girls. They all came then. And uh, so they all… Of Belisikar and all the yeah, bands just from after that and way. Yeah, 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 yes. But they would all come through. They all played at Wings. So um, mm. Boo, bands like that, you know, and Matthew van der Vant and all those artists that came through at the time. Um, Henry Eight, I don't know if you remember Karma. Yeah, with Karma, yes, Karma, I'm still yes, friends yeah. with her. And uh, there's yeah. also 206 used to do a lot of that, where, where 206 was still in Louis Berta Avenue. So there yes, was a lot of that time. stuff that happened. But exactly. it wasn't… Wasn't the same as the eighties. No, it wasn't. Frankly. But it was. But no, you're right. It wasn't as intense. But there were a lot of good bands that came through then. So there are stories all about that. And all the bands that played at Wings, I actually listed. I put a list at the end of the book so that they, their names of those bands can can kind of be immortalized on the on the book. You know, in the book. So I think that's quite nice. That the, yeah. You know, so if you had your band and you were in the 90s and you played at my club, I put your name at the end of the book. You, yeah, well, I have to be honest, I'm, I'm more of a Prime Circle girl than a Parlor Tones girl. I think yeah, it's well, just it's also It's crazy. That style. I signed Prime Circle to Gresham, so there's the Prime Circle stories in there as well. I'm um, sure. And Great yeah, band. The two band, biggest bands that I was involved in without playing in was the Polytones and then Nickelback, who, and I wouldn't buy either album. You know what I mean? I love the Polytones as people, but I would never really go and buy a Polytones album, you know? And I played on stage with them and everything, and they know that because I've told them, you know? Mm. And, and Nickelback as well, I wouldn't, but I was a Roadrunner label manager and I ended up doing that huge hits and everything, which was very great for the record company and for my job, but, it's just, I think it's God's humor because God works in really funny ways. <laughs> the two bands that are, you know. I love Nickelback. Most, I'm one of those people. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, then, yeah, but for me, I wouldn't, you know. It was just like a weird thing. But, I, yeah, anyway. But it's fun to tell people that, that that I was the guy that brought Nickelback to South Africa via David Gresham, of course, working yeah. for him, you know. So so one, one question for you. Of the bands, which was the absolute best, do you reckon, in the 80s? Which was the one that gave the best stories and which one had the best music that's lasted till today? Okay, before I answer it, I have to say the, the wildest stories are in the Bonneboom chapter. There was the most real rock and roll band I ever played in. Uh, it, just, okay. it was like the real deal. It was, you know, we, we felt like that. I said, I tell it to my son. We felt like we were the, 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 the guys who'd robbed the bank and we were riding off with all the women on the back of our horses. <laughs> that, that brotherhood rebel thing. Okay. Mm. Um, are you saying the bands I played in or, or the bands? The bands of the time. Well, I reckon Robbie Rob has the best stories. I've told one or two of his. Because yeah. he was in two huge bands that were, you know. Asylum Kids and Tribe After Tribe. And don't forget, that's of course, correct. they also did Shag before that with Cliffy Ely and Robbie Well, there's Whitehall. a story. That's how I met him. Mel, that's Ch- how I met, I met him. At the Underground. Rock. No, we played a festival and Void played and Robbie was there. And we and we blew the crowd away because we played a 17-minute prog rock original. And Robbie walks up to me and he went, we're a boogie band. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I love that about him, and I knew he's going to be just someone I'm going to run into all the time. And, uh, mm. yeah, because Robbie was very competitive, although he always made out he wasn't. He was like, no, it's not the music and the jamming, but he wasn't, and I loved him for that, you know. So I would say he had the best stories, but I think 
for the shock factor, the Petit Cheval stories, because we were kind of riding a wave. It burnt brightly, but it won't burn very short. But the Evoid music has lasted so long. So the backstory mm. of Evoid and the anecdotes there are something I think people will buy into because they still know those songs and they still love those songs. Well, I do hope that everybody who actually wants to get into a bit of a blast from the past, get out of the shackles of like post yuppiedom and go back to their actual roots. I think that they should be getting hold of your book. And I wish you, you the so best much. of luck with it. And thank you very much for having the time, taking the time out to come and chat. It's lovely I to go for on a little walk down Melanie Lane. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, can I steal that? I'm going to tell you people I went on, uh, okay, I'm going to use that. And I just have to just to put one uh, sort of final official disclaimer here. I was never a drummer. I was always a drama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know that you drummers are a bit weird. Daddy Devet, thank you so very much. Thank we'll you catch so up with you again Melanie. soon. Okay. Thank you. God bless you and thank you. Okay. Bye. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.